and welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives Diseases of Childhood. This is the best podcast relating evidence-based child health that is based out of a bedroom in Leeds. In this podcast, we talk about all sorts of things, but mainly evidence-based medicine and how to do it, and then usually some clinical questions that relate to everyday things that you might meet in your practice to try to improve how science can inform your sharing of decision-making. Let's leap onwards in order to get into how to do evidence-based medicine. Our little piece this week is all thinking about how do we balance different bits of evidence. Say, if 11 people say one thing and a 12th disagrees, which way do you go? Let's take a very simple example. What if the decision that's being made or the question that's being asked is, are the chips any good at the canteen? In that situation, if the 11 say they are and the 1 says there isn't, it's probably straightforward. They probably are. But what if the 11 all report hearsay? Simone always eats them. They smell good. And the 1 that says they aren't is an addict of the fried potato. Or what if the 1 that isn't is actually a gastronome whose only good chip was eaten at a Michelin star establishment and sits iconic in their taste memory? Your decision is to go with the democratic answer is balanced by the quality information arriving. Whether those people have actually eaten the chips, what else they've eaten in the past, the closeness of their taste to your taste. It it may also be balanced by the alternatives available, the degree of hunger that you're experiencing, and maybe just how close it is that that set of preterm twins is about to be delivered with the chippy being 10 minutes away. Basically, all this approach is evidence-based child health as well. I mean, we use fancy terminology and we may address things in a slightly different way, but we are using exactly the same processes as we do with the chip question. We ask a necessary question. We know what we will value as outcomes and we seek as much information as we can. We weight those sources according to how likely they are to tell us what we need to know the directness of the information to the population we're looking at, the variance in the data provided, the strength of those answers, and the likely truthfulness of them. All of those we balance up against our resources, and then we make the best decision we can for then, and we know that we will revisit it when things change. And sometimes democracy is the right way forward. And sadly, as the world is demonstrating, sometimes it feels like it's right to throw it out instead. Now, moving on to our first piece of actual sort of evidence and stuff, and that is, is there an association between asthma and being bullied? Now, this paper comes from Rebecca Charles and her colleague in the North Midlands or Stoke area. And they come up with this um, from seeing a, a kid in clinic who, over the course of the last year, has really deteriorated in his asthma review. His mum explains to you that he's been bullied and teased because of his asthma. And and mum's really shocked and disturbed about this. And actually, you're a bit surprised too. And so you ask the question, is there an association between having asthma and being bullied? They might have been in the land of uh, uh, Lord of the Flies, but surely not now. 
this team went away and they looked at a huge variety of electronic databases to try to pull together the best evidence they possibly could. They started off with one search, only got 36 sort of relevant hits, didn't think they'd done it right, changed the criteria again, went away, doubled the number that they looked at came up with 11 studies that could overall give them an answer to this question. They were a mixture of self-report largely and some parental report, but some of these were extremely large studies using data that have been collected across uh, near national cohorts from the USA with 33,000 individuals and from Nordic cohorts up to 15,000 individuals. What these show is that a large proportion of children report bullying, somewhere around 15 to 20%. Overall, it's probable that asthma leads to a slightly greater risk of being bullied than not having asthma. And this is in keeping with other chronic diseases. It seems to be the same sort of pattern across wherever you do these studies. So it's not a, a country specific thing at all. It appears sort of global. And there's a hint in some of the larger studies that there is a small relationship between the severity of asthma and the severity of bullying. The more the severe or more likely you are to report bullying, then the more severe your asthma is likely to be. Now, it's unclear if that's a chicken and an egg situation, whether if you have more severe asthma, you're more likely to be bullied, or whether if you're being bullied more, you're more likely to try and normalize your behavior, and that might include dropping your asthma medication so your asthma gets worse. And this doesn't answer the next question along, which is, and what can you do about it? How can people stop um, bullying occurring within schools and within school children's lives? And does that then improve their asthma control along with everything else that it would improve in their quality of life? Important to take away for all of us paediatricians that a lot of children get bullied. It's not a nice thing and it may affect their medical care as well as the broader quality of life experience. The next clinical question is really quite different, but also hugely important. It's from Suyata Kajuria and her colleagues from Northamptonshire, Leicestershire, and the Royal Berkshire NHS Foundation Trust in Reading coming together to ask a question. What is the effectiveness and safety of different interventions in the management of drooling in children with cerebral palsy? Their scenario again is a preteen boy who comes into clinic, this lad with a spastic quadriplegia with a lower respiratory tract infection and lots of drooling that his parents are really struggling with. They really don't know how to improve this. And what you do is, this team have done, is gone away and searched extensively across a huge range of databases to really try and get the best quality evidence to answer this question. They used a, a variety of synonyms for drooling, silaria, hypersalivation, sialism, slobbering, mixed in with cerebral palsy, children and approaches to management. They came up with 221 records that they screened individually and came out in the end with 14 studies with 510 participants examining nine different groups of interventions. So whilst that's a seemingly reasonable number in total, each individual intervention hasn't really been studied in an enormous amount of detail. 
Overall, there are five looking at pharmacological interventions, three looking at non-pharmacological interventions, and one actually looking at Botox versus a surgical intervention. The pharmacological interventions include benzotropine, glycopyrrolate, and hyacin. And you really should read this because it's a beautifully written article that takes through the real detail in these different aspects. The trials did try very hard to look at the important differences for these children, but also, and this is really important and missed by lots of trials, really tried to pick up the side effects. They also looked to see how much hassle was involved with these different things. The only surgical intervention was actually bilateral submandibular duct ligation. And again, looking carefully at both the benefits and side effects of doing a procedure like that. Drilling itself is not just a bit unpleasant. It can be horribly uncomfortable. Really chapped skin around your mouth, really chapped lips. It can indeed lead to dehydration if it's really excessive. The clothing can be damp and soiled. It can smell, leading to infections. Difficulty then with chewing because of the amount of saliva. Speech and language can be impaired or impaired further. Increasing social isolation poor self-esteem secondary to this. If you're trying to talk and there's speech spray, which is a phrase that's used there, the the saliva splattering out, uh, it's a social catastrophe. Interventions for this are hugely, hugely important, but not very well studied, as so many things are in this setting and with this population. What the group have done is pull together what they try to do as a sort of a sensible approach, given the the quality evidence that's there, the size of the evidence that's there, and, and what it's trying to tell us. And they consider that, that conservative or non-invasive interventions should probably be considered as a first management. And that's stuff basically around uh, um, motor exercises, chewing exercises, behavioural techniques as such. If it's still not improving with that, then to move on to the pharmacological interventions. And only when you're really failing to get on top of things with that, then move on to botulinum, toxin, or, or potentially surgery if you've got a really severe ongoing problem that's causing an issue um, for the child specifically to do with the drooling rather than other aspects as well. I do strongly encourage you to go and read that piece because it is beautifully written. You could then use that as your way forwards to think about, could I write my own Archimedes? We did a podcast a little while ago about how the experience of people writing Archimedes is, is, and I would really encourage you to go onto the website, look at the instructions to authors, follow the template for a handy guide, send them in, get an idea about where we're going with these. We have a, a broadly positive editorial approach where we try and help and improve things so it's an educational experience even if you don't get it published in the end but many many people do i look forward to hearing them from you in future and until next month archimedes is saying good night